0: A tragedy in Texas hits home for people still healing in South Florida. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN, I'm Luis Hernandez. People in South Florida affected by the Parkland school shooting are reacting to the tragedy that unfolded at an elementary school yesterday in Uvalde, Texas. We speak with WLRN's Broward County correspondent about some of the public safety news there and how the community is doing. Also, we'll look at the latest virus to get our attention, monkeypox Already two cases are being investigated in Florida. We're talking with the interim chief medical officer for Broward Health. And finally,
1: the most prolific drug traffickers in U.S. history.
0: In honor of our Sunday book club, a look back on a discussion about the Cocaine Cowboys documentary and how it shaped Miami Today. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. People in South Florida know all too well about the pain and the sadness that's being felt in Texas. Yesterday 21 people, two adults and the rest of them fourth graders, died at the hands of a lone gunman. It was again stirred ang- it has again stirred anger and debate over gun control measures. And this is all happening as South Florida's community is still awaiting the trial of the confessed Parkland shooter from 2018. They're in the middle of jury selection. Well, joining us now to talk about Broward County news in the middle of this grieving is WLRN's Broward County correspondent, Gerard Albert III. Gerard, great to have you. Hey, Lewis, Thanks. So just want to mention, too, that this conversation may be difficult for some who are struggling after yesterday's tragedy. We have resources to help with staying on top of our mental health locally. It's at WLRN.org. So, Gerard, how are people in Broward County, uh, also in the courthouse responding to this shooting yesterday in Texas.
1: Lewis, it's uh, it's on everybody's mind. Um, not only in the courtroom for the Parkland shooter, but outside, um, just walking around, overhearing people talking about it, um, obviously on social media, um, the Broward Sheriff's office had a press conference about it today the superintendent of broward schools was there as well it is uh it's on everybody's mind and i think it's a uh, obviously people are sad but um the frustration that comes with it too the fr- frustration from um inaction in, in terms of legislation and and the uh the fear i guess of of getting jaded to this uh extreme violence
0: that uh, that event in texas was actually brought up in court in the court uh, today, and this is State Prosecutor Carolyn McCann.
2: There's 27 mass shootings, school shootings this year. There's going to be more, unfortunately. The defendant is not special. He's not unique. He's not extraordinary. And unfortunately, and very sadly, this is a crime that has happened before and it will happen again. And we cannot uh, break and keep Editing the questions and tailoring them every time something terrible and unbelievable happens, Your Honor. All
0: right, that is really hard to listen to, um, Gerard. What was the response to her statement? Yeah, uh, what an what an awful awful truth about our country. Um, but
1: the response uh, that that was in uh, in regards to the defense raising the uh, issue that these mass shootings are happening and they can affect the jury because right now we're in the second round of jury selection. There's about 400 jurors. They're trying to whittle it down to 150 jurors, which is going to take another couple of weeks. Then after that, whittle it down to 12 jurors and eight alternates. It's going to take another couple of weeks. So in that time, they're saying that While this jury may not be consuming news about the Parkland school shooting, they're going to be consuming news about other mass shootings. And it's appropriate to ask them about their feelings of the mass shootings, uh, which the judge allowed. It it was rare for the judge to side with the defense uh, from what we've seen so far in the courtroom. But um, that was what Carolyn McCann was objecting to, the fact that the defense wanted to ask potential jurors about their feelings towards the recent mass
0: shootings. And, uh, you know, talking about the, the jury selection, a batch of potential jurors dismissed earlier this week because yet one person in the group was wearing an MSD Strong shirt, a showing of support for Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. How did that impact the potential jurors? I mean, what happened after that? Right. Um, she was in a group with ten
1: jurors, including herself. And they were all dismissed. The judge said that because she was wearing a shirt, it may have tainted the that that pool of jurors. Um, so that's ten less jurors that they can pick from. And the judge has been very careful about this this tainting of the jury. Today, um, a a parent of a uh, of a child who was killed in Parkland uh, gave an interview to some of the media outside in the hallway, and. Um, She was very careful because the jury, which was in a separate room, could hear parts of the interview. So she now has banned uh, interviews in the hallways so that the jury does not pick up any of that stuff. She was being uh, very careful about the.
0: And we're talking about Tom Hoyer, right? Yes. Tom Hoyer, whose son Luke was killed in the Parkland shooting. Here's what he uh, he wanted to share at the courthouse today.
3: You know what those families are going through, because... I know what the families had to endure sitting in a room, waiting to hear, and their child's laying in school, on the floor, it's heartbreaking, Just heartbreaking.
0: Again, we keep hearing uh, from folks like him calling for action on gun control. What, did they, what else did he say? What else are you hearing from folks around him uh, after the tragedy yesterday? It's a, it's a mix
1: from the parents of the, of the Parkland victims. Uh, it, it is, it is sadness. It is sympathy. It is tips on, you know, here's how we made it through um, a lot of support from the community. A lot of just telling the parents that if they need someone to reach out to that, reach out to them. And I, I've seen similar things from the the parents of the Sandy Hook victims. Um, the other thing is they're mentioning that what what uh, a lot of people are mentioning is that they want to see national uh, federal legislation on gun control, similar to some of the small steps we took here in Florida uh, after Parkland, some of the red flag laws they bring up, um, obviously, background checks and stuff like that.
0: And, and by the way, just, I misspoke. Tom Hoyer wasn't calling for gun control. He was just expressing his grief uh, for those families uh, yesterday in Texas. Um, The Broward Sheriff's Office held a press conference this morning to remind people about public safety efforts here. What was the sheriff's message to the community?
1: Sheriff's message was uh, one, uh, first and foremost that they were keeping track of any possible threats. He said there were none at the moment, but they were increasing their patrol around schools. Um, but, But that, that, uh, Chunk of time in the press conference where he spoke about the safety was 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 short, uh, and he he got into his own personal frustration uh, being uh, a law enforcement officer and, and just being a a resident of uh, the frustration around the lack of legislation uh, nationally for for gun control. He said, you know, uh, law enforcement can only do so much. There there needs to be action from the politicians.
0: And, and just coming back r- real quickly, again, to what Carolyn McCann, the state prosecutor, said, and, you know, a- again, the jury selection process and how it's been going. Do you get a sense from anybody in the court as to how this is all going to affect the trial, all of this, and how long it might take? Yeah. Um
1: you know, I don't think this is going to affect the speed of the trial all too much. Um, it is a slow speed at that. But um, no, I mean, the, the the questions will be asked, but it, it will not have a, a significant delay on, on any of the jury selection. I think the biggest delay is that now we're seeing the people that are called back from when they came in for the first round a month ago. Now, some of them have new jobs. Some of them are starting schools. Some of them uh, they have a sickness in the family, and they're the caretaker. So today, 18 jurors came in, and six of them were dismissed because they had those type of uh, financial or time constraint hardships.
0: Mm. Again, I'm talking with WLRN's Broward County correspondent, Gerard Albert III. We're talking about the criminal justice uh, sheriff's office, community news in Broward, uh, how the headlines nationally are Heightening the you know the the situation here in South Florida, considering what we saw in Uvalde, Texas. You can find again local mental health resources on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Gerard, I'm going to switch things up here. Um, there was also news this week that the Broward County Commissioners have agreed to give the Broward Sheriff's Office millions of dollars to help retain workers in answering 911 calls. And that came after the Sun-Sentinel investigation revealed that BSO did not have enough employees to answer emergency calls. How much money is BSO gonna get?
1: So right now, uh, that vote was for uh, just above $4 million. And that is to be used exclusively for raises and salaries for uh, the 911 operators, Uh, the initial ask by BSO was a bit bigger. Um, I think it was around $11 million. And that was to hire uh, more 911 operators and increase the salaries. And also um, I think they asked for another $17 million for um, centralizing their 911 call operator center. And they want that now in the downtown building that they have in Fort Lauderdale.
0: So that's for raises and salaries, but does that mean increasing salaries So they hope they can hire more people, or just the current crew that they have. It'll be uh, to
1: hire new people as well as to give raises to the current employees. Uh, The big thing that Sheriff Gregory Tony uh, stressed was that Palm Beach is uh, county, right to the north of us, is paying so much more. I think anywhere between fifteen and twenty-three thousand more for 911 operators, and, and they do they handle less call volume. So the, the, the Broward call operators are, are leaving because they're not getting paid as much.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, the other thing that was brought up in this story was that there was a concern that these call center workers were being overworked, that they were burnt out. Um, so throw in more money, I mean, is that the solution? Have BSO or commissioners discussed the you know addressing workplace culture?
1: Sure. There's the, there's the uh, overwork, which is just the symptom of not having enough employees. There's the work culture that uh, the Sun Sentinel report uh, touches on. And there's also, you know, who, who controls uh, the 911 operators. Uh, here in Broward County, it's a mix of the sheriff's office and the county commissioners. In the other 10 biggest uh, sheriff's uh, departments in the country, they're all run by the sheriff's department. That's what Gregory Tony wants. He wants full control the county. Some of the commissioners say uh, they want to see um, they, they, they they want to see the report that's coming in from a consultant to see what the best move is uh, moving
0: forward. and and again as you said because i'm coming back to the money here is they were asking for millions of dollars over 11 million let me clarify 11 million to 17 million is that what you said no i'm sorry uh 11 million
1: was going to be used for salaries the 17 was for um for building the uh or not building but using part of the current building that they have in fort lauderdale for 911 operations. So I guess that would go towards the building. But yeah, the, the four the four million is seen as a stop the bleeding type of uh throw money at the problem really quickly because this is a problem that needs fixing right now, immediately. In the future, um the county's hired a consultant to look at the Broward Sheriff's Office and see the best options moving forward, whether to keep it in control of the Broward Sheriff's Office or put it back into control of a, of a third party or kind of have this hybrid that they have at the moment.
0: How fast would they get that money? Is that going right, right away after the vote? Is that money available?
1: Yes, it'll be available, um, I, I'm not sure about right after the vote, but very quickly um, because I think they, uh, they were trying to get it to them before September, which is the, uh, the financial
0: year. A story that we have been talking about a lot. We'll keep our eyes on it. Gerard, always a pleasure. I appreciate the update today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Again, that's WLRN's Broward County correspondent, Gerard Albert III. Follow all of his reporting from Broward County on our website, WLRN.org. Well, still to come, health officials have discovered a small monkeypox outbreak. We'll talk about what you should know. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. A small outbreak of a rare disease called monkeypox has been detected in various countries. Two possible monkeypox cases are being investigated in Broward County. They are the first two reported in the state of Florida. The headlines about this viral disease might bring back some memories of 2020 when COVID 19 was emerging, but health experts say this virus is different and extremely unlikely. To become a pandemic joining me now is joshua lenches he is the interim chief medical officer for broward health joshua thank you so much for your time thank you sir to be here so can you tell me what do we know about these two presumptive monkeypox cases in broward right now what do we know
4: uh well the department of health at the county level has been working with the hospitals and uh, identifying uh, whether this suspected cases are in fact uh, will become confirmed monkeypox cases.
0: What are the symptoms? What are the signs of monkeypox? What should we be looking for?
4: Monkeypox is a rash that is accompanied by a fever, uh, some chills, muscle aches, headache, exhaustion, sort of a typical uh, cold and flu-like symptoms, some swollen lymph nodes uh, as well. About uh, one to three days after the onset of the fever, you can begin to see this rash. The rash looks very similar to kind of a chicken pox-ish rash, although the distribution where it manifests in the body is a little bit different. Uh, with chicken pox, we generally see that in younger populations, and uh, it usually is on the chest or the back in a sort of linear fashion, maybe a diagonal fashion, uh, if you will. Monkeypox is a little bit different in that... Um, this is not um, one side of your body or the other. It could start in the mouth or the face, uh, and then cascade kind of uh, down the body. Uh, the, so the similarities between uh, chickenpox and, and monkeypox are are there because uh, they're in the same pox family, if you will, of viruses. But there are some significant differences.
0: Well, I mean, as you know, I mean, you think about the last couple of years, you know, how we all seem to feel when we hear about viruses now, and this comes out, is this a threat? Should we be really worried?
4: Yeah, th- no, I, I totally get it. I, you know, after the last two and a half years of dealing with, with COVID, this is much, much different than, than COVID. COVID-19, when, when that hit, the world was completely unexposed to COVID previously. Uh, monkeypox. IN ADDITION TO, to um, chickenpox BEING IN THAT SAME FAMILY, SO IS SMALLPOX. AND SMALLPOX, WE HAVE ABOUT 70 YEARS WORTH OF EXPERIENCE IN, in DEALING WITH THAT. IT WAS ERADICATED IN THE UNITED STATES IN the, in, the, in 1980, and, AND KIDS STOPPED GETTING uh, THAT VACCINE IN THE EARLY 70s, SO WE HAVE A FAIR AMOUNT OF KNOWLEDGE ABOUT THIS. IT IS NOT ENDEMIC TO THIS AREA, WHICH IS WHY THIS HAS uh, made the, the news. It's generally, we see uh, sporadic outbreaks in Central and Western African countries. Uh, what, what's unusual about this uh, is that we have non-endemic continents like uh, North America, Europe, Australia that have uh, since been been affected. With respect to the, the transmission, though, you bring up a great point. I mean, the transmission of this is is um, similar yet different than the transmission of, of COVID. COVID uh, can be spread as we have dealt with for, for the last several years. Uh, by being around other people that are infected, you really can't see somebody that has COVID. Here, like chicken pox, monkey pox is spread through uh, touching the lesions. It can be spread through an infected animal that bites you or that otherwise pierces your skin. It's spread through uh, bodily fluids, which is a little different than, than COVID, obviously. And even the down to the respiratory transmission, the droplets for monkeypox are are larger than the droplets for, for COVID nineteen. So uh, all of that I think paints a picture for your audience to know that it's extremely rare uh, for somebody in the United States to contract monkeypox.
0: So how do you? I mean, do we have any idea how it might have made its way to South Florida?
4: That's a great uh, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, certainly international travel has a lot to do with it. That's how most of these things wind up spreading. Uh, when we look at the, the one confirmed case that we have so far in the U.S. and Massachusetts, it, it is in, in fact, a citizen of the United States who had returned from Canada uh, after traveling outside the country. So it is still uh, incredibly likely that uh, those folks that have uh, brought this to the United States have some international uh, travel and have communicated, contacted uh, somebody that had been infected.
0: Again, I'm talking with Dr. Joshua Lenches. He is the Interim Chief Medical Officer of Broward Health. Talking about monkeypox, the thing that we've been hearing about in the news, the CDC and the Florida Department of Health are investigating the first two presumptive cases in the state, both being reported in Broward County. And uh, you can follow this story on our website, WLRN.org. Also, our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um so, Joshua, the, is this linked to monkeys? Is it linked to a specific
4: species? Well, it first identified in, in uh, 1958, there was uh, a, two groups of monkeys that uh, that this was identified. These pox-like lesions were identified in, and that's how it uh, it got its name, monkey pox. In, in fact, monkeys are but one carrier uh, in the animal species of this disease. There are... Uh, RATS AND OTHER RODENTS, PRAIRIE DOGS, Uh, BUT REALLY IT'S NOT SPECIFIC TO MONKEYS. IF THERE'S AN INFECTED MONKEY THAT SCRATCHES OR BITES ANOTHER ANIMAL AND THAT ANIMAL uh, THEN BECOMES A VECTOR OF TRANSMISSION AND THAT ANIMAL THEN CAN CONTINUE TO TRANSMIT THE DISEASE. AND IN FACT, THE LAST TIME THAT WE HAD AN OUTBREAK, IF YOU WILL, uh, IN THE UNITED STATES WAS IN 2003. IN TEXAS, THERE WAS a, A SHIPMENT OF ANIMALS THAT HAD COME FROM Ghana. And uh, it manifested in uh, six states, 47 cases uh, back then. So I would, um, it's too early to tell the magnitude of this, certainly. Uh, It is something that we're keeping an eye on and we're working with the CDC and the local uh, departments as well.
0: So not totally a new virus. We've seen this before. We've seen an outbreak, sort of. But what have we learned then about the disease? What do we know?
4: Yeah, ac- excellent question. Uh, what we what we did find out is in terms of um, its uh, disease process, the disease process itself, like chickenpox, once those pox-like uh, lesions or, or rash develops, it takes somewhere between two and four weeks for them to uh, go through their sort of weeping phase and then they crust over and then they scab and then they sort of fall off in, in most people. And we also know that uh, folks that had been, VACCINATED FOR SMALLPOX BECAUSE IT'S IN THE SAME FAMILY uh, HAVE SOME PROTECTION OVER BEING INFECTED WITH monkeypox. THE FEDERAL GOVERNMENT HAS A STOCKPILE THAT IT'S KEPT uh, FOR, I SUPPOSE, PRECISELY A SITUATION LIKE THIS. Uh, AND THEY'RE WORKING WITH MANUFACTURERS. THE CDC IS HEAVILY INVOLVED IN WORKING WITH MANUFACTURERS TO TRY TO INCREASE OUR CAPACITY OF HAVING uh, VACCINES SO THAT IF SOMEONE IS, IN FACT, CONFIRMED AS INFECTED, it may be something that we could give that person uh, within the first several days in an effort to minimize their symptoms. Uh, the other drug that we have already on the market that we've been using for um, a number of years now is uh, intravenous immunoglobulin. So this boosts one's immune system. We use this for other uh, disease states that too is uh, in, that too is already out on the market that can help minimize uh, the severity of symptoms as well. So we have learned from uh we've learned about the transmission we've learned how incredibly important it is for uh containment and uh and the uh contact tracing that we really perfected over the last two years with with COVID 19 and then we've also learned about how to treat it
0: so i mean again being part of the pox family and you'd mentioned if you had had a smallpox vaccine you're sort of protected but yeah i mean you know because a lot of us as kids go through chicken pox Uh, how does, does that have any impact? Does that protect us in any way? Or is this totally different?
4: Yeah. Unfortunately, smallpox and monkeypox are are closer in familiarity than chickenpox is, even though it's in the same general family, chickenpox would be like kind of a cousin ish as opposed to a a, a sibling. So that's why smallpox has uh, a little bit of the uh, protection against monkeypox. Chickenpox does, does, we have not seen that that has shown protection for a monkeypox.
0: You know, so I, I think back, I remember, <laughs> and I was on vacation, and then all of a sudden, I, and I tried not to watch the news, but I see a headline. I'm like, wait a minute, there's a, there's a new virus out. What's going on? <laughs> and so, But when you see something like that, and, and because I, it really, it matters to me as a member of the news media that, one, I want to keep the audience informed, but two, mm-hmm. not scare them you know how how do we approach this you know to make sure that people stay informed they know what's what's going on but at the same time you know look the world is full of diseases but let's not live our lives in terror
4: yeah well you're you're exactly right i mean that's that, that's incredibly re- responsible uh, of you i think that the importance of this is to to keep an eye out on it of course uh, like we do with with other uh, diseases i think the reason why this has made such an incredible groundswell over the last uh, week or or so has been because we're so attuned to what happened with us being caught off guard with, with COVID, not that anybody could have obviously predicted that this is, like I mentioned before, this is incredibly rare. Uh, It uh, has been eradicated from the United States for the last 40 years, uh, except for this outbreak back in 2003, which was immediately contained. Even though six states sounds like kind of a widespread compared to what we're dealing with with COVID now, that's a drop in the bucket. And I think it is, it is important for us to reiterate to, the, to your audience that um, you should stay away from uh, somebody that may have these kinds of uh, pox like lesions, just like you would stay away from, you would try to keep your kids away from other kids that have chicken pox. Uh, those people should be isolated if there is a question. we certainly do not want to scare people into not seeking medical attention. If you develop this kind of rash, best thing is to call your physician and ask what to do. If there is a suspicion about monkeypox or its exposure, they will work with the Department of Health in ensuring that the proper specimens are collected and transported so that folks can get uh, a final result expeditiously. I I agree with you, though. I, I do not see this... Based on 50 years of data, I do not see this uh, rising to the level where we need to shelter in place and, and, um, and, and stop doing what we're, what we're already doing in, in life right now. Something I, to be attuned to, but certainly nothing that we should alter.
0: I do want to verify something, because I, you know, again, reading many different stories about this, that the World Health Organization had said that monkeypox right now primarily is being spread through sex. Is this a virus? Considered sexually transmitted disease?
4: The monkeypox. It can spread through the transmission of bodily fluids. I see. So, so to that to that extent, uh, you know, I, I guess it meets that element of the definition of a sexually transmitted disease, certainly. But most sexually transmitted diseases, uh, you don't get from getting bit by an infected animal or scratched by an infected animal. So in, in that they're not respiratory in, in nature. So in that sense, it's a little bit different than your typical sexually transmitted disease that you that you think about.
0: You know this. I mean, it makes us think also coming back to smallpox and chickenpox, kind of a reminder to ourselves that you know, especially with our kids, about vaccinations. And and I wonder what you know what what are you hearing from parents, because we're living through COVID, but you know again kids have to get shots for all kinds of things, uh, you know, is this one of those things that should be like a reminder about, you know, getting, getting our shots?
4: I think in general, I, I would agree with that. You know, we, we just, we're, we're, sort of on the tail end of, of a protracted flu season now. Uh, so getting the flu vaccine when it comes out in the fall is a, is a good idea. If you haven't been vaccinated for COVID, certainly uh, that's a good idea if you, if you're able to get that uh m- smallpox uh, we, we don't have a vaccine for monkeypox and and smallpox was uh throughout the general population it, it was given in the in the 60s and, and, and early 70s and and we we stopped doing it because the the benefit of vaccinating an entire population was um significantly uh, less than than uh than the risk of, of uh, or i should say the risk of getting uh, smallpox at the time was significantly less than vaccinating the entire population so it really didn't make any any sense to continue to do that so i think the take home message in the vaccine space as as you mentioned is is to be attuned to the vaccines that are out there that we can get because we know for for decades of experience with these kinds of vaccinations that that they do minimize the severity of the illness if you do, con- in fact, contract it.
0: All right. Now, I have you here, so I have to ask you, you know, we're still living with COVID. Uh, you know, even though it feels like a lot of people have just kind of moved on and are living their lives, many people are being very careful, still wearing masks, and, and of course, people talking about getting their boosters. Um, but what have you seen with the latest COVID uh, numbers, what's it look like at the hospital?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we we have seen a slight uptick uh, with respect to uh, patients that are coming in uh, with, with COVID. It's still very difficult as I, probably you and I have discussed in the past, it's still very difficult to tease out folks that are coming in because of COVID or folks that are coming in with an incidental finding of COVID. The symptoms are a little bit different than what we've seen in the past, like if you think about the Delta wave uh, and even part of the Omicron wave uh, over the last year, it was really more lower respiratory tract infections. There was a cough, there was shortness of breath, chest tightness, uh, those kinds of things. And this newest wave is more upper respiratory, so sore throat, a runny or stuffy nose, some sinus pressure. Those are the things that we're tending to, to see at present. The other difference between this wave that we're currently experiencing versus other waves is, is that the, a number of people that are coming into the hospital is not at all commensurate with the um, with the population, with the positivity rate in the community. So we have a, a much higher positivity rate in the community than we do of uh, patients that are in the hospital. So that that's also something that's different because as you recall, over the last several waves, we saw sort of hand in glove maybe two weeks or so after the positivity rate begins to climb in a community, we started to see spillover into the hospitals. And that's when we were really pressed for looking at resources and et cetera. And we really haven't haven't seen that manifest. So I think optimistically, I think we're moving kind of more into an endemic phase of COVID-19 where this will, will have ripples from time to time, but we're really gonna get past the, the spikes that we used to have in in 2020 and 2021.
0: Just briefly, could you help me understand, like, because we keep hearing that, what what gets us into the endemic phase?
4: I think it's a combination of of factors. One is the the, the percentage of population that is uh, completely vaccinated, whether it's completely vaccinated and up to date, like with the booster, or, or not. The fact that there's some protection minimizes the spread. AS THE VIRUS CONTINUES TO REPLICATE AND MUTATE, WHICH IS A NORMAL PART OF ITS LIFE CYCLE, uh, THE SUBSEQUENT VARIANTS THAT WE'RE SEEING, AT LEAST SINCE OMICRON, SUBSEQUENT VARIANTS THAT WE'RE SEEING IN THE LAST FOUR MONTHS HAVE NOT BEEN AS VIRULENT, HAVE NOT BEEN AS SEVERE AS THE the DELTA AND THE OMICRON uh, uh, VARIANTS WERE. AND WE'RE ALSO SEEING, DESPITE THE FACT THAT uh, THE COMMUNITY a base has these uh, waves, if you will, of positivity. We're not seeing the severity manifest in folks that are being admitted to the hospital. Okay. So, when you put all of these together, it sort of follows a fluish like story where it's it's out there people are getting it but not a lot of some people get hospitalized certainly with the flu but more people are out there with the flu than are than are hospitalized during that season and that's kind of the picture that we're starting to see here Uh,
0: good to have that picture and have that understanding joshua Lenchis again interim chief medical officer for broward health joshua always appreciate the insight thank you
4: yes sir thanks for having
0: us all right and if you have any questions uh, whether it's about covid or the monkeypox, now again just find us online wlrn.org we'll keep you updated no worries still to come for this month's book club we learned about miami in the 80s next we're going to hear about the real life cocaine cowboys Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. For this month's Sundial Book Club, we went back to Miami in the 1980s. Our sunny and sandy shores were the center for the drug trade, specifically cocaine. We're reading Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. It's the true story of that time through the lens of a very iconic hotel. And we spoke with the author, Robin Farzad, last week. Today we're gonna to hear about the real life cocaine cowboy, Sal Magluta, and Willie Falcone. They were the leaders of the city's cocaine trade, bringing in an estimated $2 billion worth over the course of a decade.
4: Drug dealing was something that was
0: natural to me.
2: If you would have told us that we were criminals, we would have laughed. We're 20-year-old kids. We're just having fun.
3: Willie and Sal were the kings of cocaine in South Florida. They're first generation immigrants. They thought this was their path to the American dream.
1: The most prolific drug traffickers in US history.
4: All of Miami considered them local heroes because they were like the Robin Hoods. They always shared their wealth.
0: The Netflix series Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami explores the stories behind these drug kingpins and the law enforcement agencies responsible for tracking them down. We spoke with Jim Defiti. He's the host of Facing South Florida and a CBS reporter involved in that series, but also the director behind the series. Billy Corbin. You've been telling these stories of the cocaine trade in Miami and all of these different documentaries. How did how did the Kings of Miami, though, come together? Why did you want to revisit this story now almost 40 years later?
2: Well, you know, growing up in Miami, I think everybody knew who Willie and Sal were. I mean, they were known as Willie and Sal. No one said Willie who or Sal who. I think Jim says it in the series that uh, there may be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but in Miami, there's only one or two degrees away from Willie and Sal. And this was really, it felt like the story of our growing up in Miami. My producing partner, Alfred Spellman, remembers in middle school uh, being driven by his best friend's dad uh, to little league practice. And his best friend's dad was an attorney working in the early 90s for Willie and Sal and yelling into his a uh, car phone about all this. So that was our first exposure uh, to it, kind of an only in Miami moment there in Little League Carpool. Uh, but like then when I was in high school at New World School of the Arts in downtown Miami, I was literally around the corner from the federal courthouse where Willie and Sal were first tried in, in during my junior year. And then when I was in college at the University of Miami, Sal was on trial once again uh, in, in 02. So this really just kind of followed our formidable years. And we this was always a story that we'd wanted to tell.
0: Is it true that this series came together because you got a message on MySpace?
2: <laughs> in part, yes. It was a series of of odd, only in Miami kind of small worlds, you know, one or two degrees from Willie and Sal kinds of stories. of uh, one of which was yes, a MySpace message to give you an idea to really date the project, it was, thank you. Um, you know, uh yes, you remember the lost civilization of MySpace? Yes, the uh So we, I got a message from Marilyn Bonacea, who was uh, Sal Magluta's really childhood sweetheart and girlfriend for a lot of his life, and she had recently come out of the witness protection program and was looking to possibly tell her story, and that really is our story of telling. Uh, this, making the kings of Miami is as people are released from prison or witness protection, we got a chance to to do interviews with them and, and put this together
0: yeah Jim um, in the in the film, you beautifully describe these two guys uh, you know so many different ways, but look, a lot of people who grew up here, yeah, they know who Willie and Sal are, but for a lot of folks who moved down here you know in the years after, how do you describe Sal? How do you describe Willie Falcone?
3: I think, as I sort of say in the movie, I mean, these are two Miami high school dropouts who started off selling a little bit of marijuana and then built themselves into the biggest drug trafficking empire uh, the East Coast had seen. Uh, if, basically, if uh, you did a line of cocaine in the 80s, chances are pretty damn good that it was Falcone and Magluta who smuggled it into the country. So these were rags to riches stories. This was their version of the American dream. They get quick, get rich quick scheme. You know, they they went about it. They viewed it as a corporation. They viewed it as a business. And they went ahead and built a very large uh, criminal enterprise that, uh, that they led. And so it was, it's purely Miami. They could have gone elsewhere, but they were Miami-based, just as I am now and as Billy is.
0: And, you know, Jim, when you think about uh, the other players uh, in the story of cocaine cowboys, as Billy has, you know, shown us over, again, three other documentaries, you know, uh, where do you put Sal? And you just said that Sal and Willie were the biggest, but how do you compare them to all those other people who are here doing business, selling cocaine, trafficking cocaine through Miami?
3: Well, again, if you, you know, if you accept what the government says, you know, they're talking about 75 tons of cocaine being brought into the United States. And I think Billy has interviews with uh, some folks who say that's probably on the low end of the scale in terms of what they were bringing into the country. Uh, so in a lot of ways, they really don't compare to, to anyone else. They They set their own standard. I mean, was there a lot of cocaine flooding into the United States in the 80s and early 90s? Yeah. But Willie and Sal had cornered and built the Miami market for it. And I think that's one of the things that Billy described so well is that they basically took what was a backwater drug area, which was South Beach, and turned it into one of the hottest, hippest, coolest spots for the drug trade that you were ever going to see.
0: You know, Billy, one of the interesting points, and right off the bat in episode one, you see it, uh, we're introduced to uh, Sal and Willie. And not as drug kingpins, but the other thing they were really good at and they were very successful at, they were speedboat racers.
2: Yes, world champion offshore powerboat races, like four times over, uh, in fact, between the two of them. Uh, And they were participating in this very uh, expensive sport, uh, which uh, at that time was dominated by uh, convicted drug traffickers, or as Jim says, uh, in the series, soon to be convicted, uh, drug traffickers. Uh, it was it was such an expensive sport that there wasn't many people uh, outside of, of that trade in Miami who could afford to participate uh, in it. And uh, they were, in fact, racing on live international television while they were, in fact, fugitives from justice. Uh, and so instead of lying low or hiding out, they were instead on live TV um, as sportsmen and being interviewed.
0: Yeah, and, and you know what? I mean, as, like I said, you get a sense of, of how Willie and, and Sal ran their business uh, you know, from one of the pilots uh, responsible for transporting the cocaine. Let's take a
4: listen. There was a time that I was making about one or two trips a month. We're talking about 800 keys a month. I was basically making around 200 grand per trip. Willie, he wanted me to go every week. But uh, it's like, how many times can you go into a bullfighting and,
0: and, and not get hurt?
4: They used to bring the coke from Columbia to Freeport. From Freeport, they would bring the coke to Miami in speedboats.
0: So here they are. They're using speedboats, you know, to become more famous and flaunt the, you know, their wealth. And, of course, the speedboats were also being used to bring the cocaine in uh, from Freeport. Billy, I wanted to come back to Maryland. Uh, this is, again, the woman who sent you the MySpace message, but she's really the main character of this whole story. Fascinating uh, character. Who was she?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the six-episode arc, uh, to some extent, belongs to her, and it's through her that we understand Sal and and Willie. Um, She met Sal when she was only about 14 or so years old at the... A uh, Cuban bakery that his parents owned and operated and worked at uh, before dawn every day for nearly 40 years. Um, I think that's important to remember is not everybody was in the drug trade in Miami, but uh, even though everybody seemed to uh, to benefit from it in some way or another, but his parents were very hardworking uh, Cuban exiles and she worked in the bakery. And um, that's where she first caught his eye um, and uh, started to date. Uh, and then through the years, Uh, Eventually, she came to be his uh, bookkeeper, where she was helping to move approximately seven plus million dollars in cash uh, all over uh, Miami to lawyers, to prison guards, to charities, um, to uh, uh, churches, to some pretty prominent um, uh, uh, and militant anti-Castro organizations they helped to uh, support and finance. Um, And she was eventually indicted. Uh, and looking at 200 years in prison for her involvement in alleged money laundering.
0: Always think about gangsters and their bookkeepers. That's just just (laughs) saying, just saying. Uh, Speaking with Billy Corbin with uh, Tour Films, the uh, director of the new Netflix series Cocaine Cowboys out now. It's the Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami. We're also talking with CBS host of Facing South Florida and reporter Jim Defiti. Again, find out more about the series on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Jim, how did Miamians at the time view Sal and Willie? Were they like local heroes, or I mean, look, they're drug dealers, and you know, come on, a lot of there was a lot of death in the '80s, and, and there was a lot of darkness. But what were they? What did people think of Sal and Willie?
3: Well, one of the things that they were known for. Uh, during most of the years that they were involved in the drug trade was that they eschewed violence. They they steered clear of it because violence wasn't good for business. Uh, violence drew attention. You want to get on the police radar, then you start uh, doing uh, murders. Uh, so they they tended to stay away from that. Now, there were allegations that come later as, as the walls start closing in on them that uh, Sal in particular was responsible for uh, ordering a number of murders. they He was never convicted on any of it. They tried. they They were never able to prove that case. Uh, you know, Marilyn Bonnacha describes him as 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 Robin hood's. and and in a lot of ways, there's some truth to that. You know, if you needed money for, because you know you had a kid that was wanted to go to college, you could go to Williams Sal. It was a lot like the old uh, Godfather movie where where folks would come and ask for help and assistance. And that's just the way that they would then handle it is is maybe there was something you could do for me down the line. But more importantly, you know, as part of the Cuban diaspora, they were they were part of that community. Uh, You know, it's funny you talked before about the powerboat racing circuit. I was reminded of of a story. Somebody came to me after seeing the series and her her father was in the powerboat racing world and has since passed away. But but she was she was stunned to hear describe as almost everyone in that world was either indicted or soon to be indicted Uh, and so she went and talked to her mother and her mother just smiled and said said uh yeah you don't know a lot of the life we lived before you were born and that's just (laughs) the way that miami was there were those days back in the 80s and 90s where people made money or did things and uh, lived their lives and then sort of turned a new chapter so But they were they were instrumental in a lot of different ways here in South Florida, including keeping a bank afloat and being responsible for a lot of movement. I think Billy talks about how they were the true essence of trickle down economics. They actually did seed businesses and money throughout the community.
0: I, I wanted to get this take from both of you, Jim. I'll start with you. But Billy, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. How do you tell this story? without glamorizing two notorious drug kingpins I mean because as you said you know they were Robin Hood like figures and that was the case with Pablo Escobar too on some level but how do you tell this story Jim without glamorizing that
3: you know this was something I dealt with I wrote about these these cases I spent better part of a decade when I was at Miami New Times writing uh, writing extensively about Balcon and Magluda and it is easy to sort of uh, create an aura around them that makes it seem romantic, but as Billy will, I'm sure, say in a second, you know, at the end of the day, many of them end up either dead or in prison; their lives ruined. I can remember sitting with you played the sound from from uh, the pilot there, Ralph Lanero. I can remember sitting with him and knowing uh, what it was like for him to lose his family when he went to prison. Uh, I will also tell you, but you're right that. I've also heard from people who have come to me and said that, you know, their, their, their loved ones, their family members became drug addicts during this period of time. You know, there's a certain sense of self-responsibility that everyone has to take, but the drugs were there in part because of Falcon and Magluta. Would they have been there anyway?
0: Sure. Billy, I want your take on that.
2: It's a rise and fall story. And so like any rise and fall story, the rise can appear to be, uh, rather appealing uh, at times. I mean, if you're a 20-something male living in Miami in the 1980s and you become a billionaire with a B, uh, you're going to have a, a lifestyle that may seem exciting to some. The thing of it is is that it's also a fall, uh, a rise and fall story. And, and everybody in this story uh, winds up dead or in prison. And I think Ralph Lennaro in particular, who Jim cited, uh, specifically says... Uh, that, despite the fact that he can look back on these good old battle days um, and and recount all the craziness of his twenties uh, in Miami at the time, uh, he says it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth losing his wife. It wasn't worth losing, for a time, his relationship with his daughter, and it wasn't worth losing fifteen years in prison.
0: And again, that's Billy Corbin, director of the Netflix series Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami. You also heard from Jim DeFiti, host of Facing South Florida, and a CBS reporter involved in the series. Again, for this month's Sundial Book Club, we're reading Hotel Scarface, where Cocaine Cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. You can join and learn more about the book club. Find us on Facebook. Just look up Sundial Book Club. Ask to join. It's free and we'd love to have you. And stay tuned, later this week, we'll announce our June book pick. Well, that's our program for this Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bateman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz, Richard Ives pushing the buttons today. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Don't forget, if you miss any of the program today, you can listen to the rebroadcast tonight at 8 or just download the podcast. Look up WLRN Sundial, subscribe, rate, review, all those wonderful things. Well, we're going to continue speaking to mental health professionals and bringing you community resources in the wake of the Parkland and the Texas shootings. Also, coming up tomorrow on the program, it's Wildlife Thursday again, and we're looking at something fascinating that grows in South Florida the rare cigar orchid. That's all coming up tomorrow on the show. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.